Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast, episode 37, back to audio only this week. Thank you for all the feedback on our uh, video experiment a couple of weeks ago. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, Mr. Markham, how have you been since we last chatted, sir? Well, I've been very fine. Uh, thank you, uh, Cameron. Uh, and I also express appreciation to those folks who who uh, enjoyed the, the, the video. I, I, I note without any surprise whatsoever that people were much more uh, interested in seeing the, the very few shots of my library than they were of seeing my mug. Uh, but no one can be surprised at that, least of all me, especially since the, the camera was sitting a little bit too high, really, and, and it, I looked like my eyes are closed most of the time, I think, because of looking, looking down on me. But but uh, we'll do that again. Today was be, it was a very good day not to do a video because, uh, among other things, my the woman who, who, who does my hair, cuts my hair for me, was vacationing in Mexico, and so I'm afraid I've gotten a bit on the shaggy side. So it's probably just as well, plus my... My desk uh, is not in a condition that I'd be very happy to show. But we will do another uh, video uh, down, down the line, and I'll have some more goodies to show. And, and uh, I'm glad that people enjoyed, enjoyed that, and, and so we'll do it again. There's another comment I wanted to, to respond to, and it might have been on the biography show instead of this one. I don't recall offhand, uh, but it fits under the category... Uh, be careful what you wish for because you may get it. Uh, one very, very kind gentleman uh, said he really enjoyed hearing what we had to say, and it, it wouldn't have bothered him a bit if Markham had talked for another three hours. Uh, well, <laughs> I might have bothered an awful lot of other people if I went off for an additional three hours, and including maybe me, uh, but uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how long the next one is. So we should, uh, you've given us a good opportunity there to, to plug the new podcast that we are doing. We're calling it The Biography Show. Now, don't fear people, this isn't the uh, infamous Caesar show that we've been threatening to do for some time, which I imagine we will get to at some stage this year, probably as the Napoleon show winds down, or we may start it when we're uh, drinking one night in Ajaxio in July, and I'll get uh, a few, uh, uh, what, well, what's your oh, a few scotches, of course. What am I thinking? Into David, and we'll start talking about Julius Caesar, and I'll just surreptitiously turn the microphone on. But uh, <laughs> the biography show, which you can find at biography.thepodcastnetwork.com, you'll see a link for it on the Napoleon uh, Show website. New show that David and I started a couple of weeks ago. The basic idea is to do one or two episodes a month and to talk about a, a very influential person in human history. And, and try and cover them in an episode. Uh, it's obviously not going to be anywhere near as much detail as we've been doing with Napoleon. But for example, in episode one, we did Alexander the Great. That took us about uh, 90 minutes. And we were just talking before we uh, started here today. We're thinking that the next episode will be on Hammurabi uh, of the infamous, well not infamous, the, the, the very influential code of Hammurabi, the first set of written down human laws, I think, David. Does that sound right? Well, it's very close to the first set at any rate, and, and certainly he's considered to be the first empire, uh, although if you look at the maps, uh, much smaller than things like the Roman Empire, for example, or the British Empire, but he had the first uh, empire in Mesopotamia, and it was the first time that, that one area, uh, one empire was was organized under a single set of codes, and, and it's really... Uh, uh, a landmark uh, episode in, in American history, and he's a pretty interesting character. Now, we always uh, figured that the biography shows would last around a half an hour. Uh, I, I'm not so sure that we'll ever finish one in quite that short a time. Uh, and, and I want to, as a matter of fact, uh, put a request out to our listeners. If you know uh, the answer to my uh, query, the Code of Hammurabi uh, was, I believe, in the Iraqi Archaeological Museum, uh, which was, as many of you know, tragically trashed uh, uh, at the beginning of the current uh, war in, in Iraq. Uh, the uh, uh, 
soldiers were were not dis- dispersed to uh, to guard the uh, museum like they were to guard some of the oil uh, uh, facilities, and and as a result, a lot of things were destroyed, a lot of things were stolen. A huge amount of it has been returned, and the museum is in much better shape now than it was a number of years ago. But I don't know what the ultimate fate of the Code of Hammurabi was. So if somebody out there uh, knows or can take the time to try to find out, I'm going to look, look into it more, and so is a Cameron. But if somebody can do that and email us, uh, uh, send us a post or whatever, uh, I would very, very much appreciate that because that would be one of the tragic losses of ancient civilization if somehow those codes had been uh, destroyed. Mm. All right, so that's the biography show. We hope some of you will come along and, and listen and support the show, biography.thepodcastnetwork.com. Now, and, and, and oh. let, let me just make one quick additional comment we're sort of toying with different approaches to take and we always welcome feedback but now we're thinking in terms of sort of a quasi-linear approach which means we will start off with a number of of ancient uh, people of some importance now clearly we're already not going forward linearly if we start with Alexander and then move to Hammurabi uh, but uh, the first number of shows as we look at that now are likely to be from from ancient civilization. If you have suggestions uh, for people you would like us to cover, or if you have different ideas on on how we could uh, approach this, we would certainly uh, welcome your your input. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure people understood it's not going to be all ancient civilization. We will eventually get to to the modern era uh, as well. <laughs> Sure, we will. Sure. Yeah, he's laughing. We, 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 the modern era will no longer be the modern era by the time we get to it. So let's uh, let's jump back to eighteen fifteen uh, when we last left Mister Bonaparte. He is Mister Bonaparte now, or General Bonaparte, perhaps, uh, because he has abdicated for the second time from the throne, uh, the second and final time from the throne of France and uh, I think that's where we finished last time he we he signed the abdication I think you read out some of the text of the abdication he had the aspiration perhaps the pipe dream it might have been that he would abdicate in the name of his son Napoleon II the king of Rome uh, but of course as we know and we, we might get to that today that that wasn't to be so what happened next, David, in the story of Napoleon's downfall? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating story, and, and you have to remember that I've written an entire book on this period, and we're not about to cover everything in, in that book, uh, you know, The Road to St. Helena, uh, Napoleon After Waterloo. Uh, but I do want to go through some of the things that, that happened, First of all, he's still Napoleon. He's still the Emperor Napoleon, just like you know, re- retired uh, presidents uh, are still called Mister President. Uh, uh, at this point, anyway, he's he's still uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, still the Emperor Napoleon. Although, of course, the the uh, retired Emperor, if you will. So, so uh, really. No. Yeah, at this stage. Now that that's once, once you ab- once you abdicate, it's not a title for life. Well, I'm not so sure. Uh, I don't, and, you I know, don't understand why they do that in America either. Why, why are your former presidents still referred to as president? I think as a as a as a courtesy, as a, as a sign of respect. Uh, you know, they're they're entitled to some kind of a, a, a title, just as just as they are entitled to Secret Service protection after they're out of office, as as they should be. Uh, and uh, I think it's a matter of respect. At any rate, we're, we're probably splitting hairs because it's not going to be very much longer before the British decide that he is no longer uh, emperor. And by the way, you, you could argue he's still emperor of uh, Elba. Uh, after all, he, he left. He was declared emperor of Elba. He left mm. Elba. He, he, he became also 
uh, emperor of France, but but he never abdicated as emperor of Alba. So so certainly you could, and at one point his supporters will argue uh, later on mm-hmm. that he still should be considered emperor of Alba. Uh, and and remember, you know the the emperor of Austria was also the Holy Roman Emperor. So you know uh, with different numbers after his name. Uh, so it's not at all. You know, unheard of that that a person could be, could be an emperor of two different uh, uh, countries. Uh, so for for now, he's he's still emperor, and most people are going to refer to him as as emperor. So Fouché gets uh, gets hold of the the, uh, the 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 abdication document that we read last time, and he uh, he arrives to the chamber of representatives and gives it to the president. Who admonishes the the members to res, to remain respectively silent, and then he reads the document to them, which of course they had more or less demanded. You'll recall from last episode uh, that that Napoleon abdicate. Nevertheless, there there has to have been a lot of emotion on the floor uh, at that stage. Got a lot of a lot of longtime supporters of of Napoleon, and even some who had turned against him. Uh, still, I'm sure, were quite taken by him. And, and Fouché, <laughs> who is not one of my favorites, as I suspect everybody has figured out by now, uh, takes the floor and he, he proclaims, and I quote, the representatives of the nation must not forget in the course of the coming negotiations to guard the interests of the man who has presided over the destiny of our country for so many long years. Well, my goodness, this is the same so-and-so who has engineered this whole debacle, uh, who is the primary reason why Napoleon is having to abdicate, uh, and, but now he's trying to act like he's got Napoleon's uh, interest uh, uh, you know, it, 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 in his heart, and that's, of course, more or less baloney. Uh, others take the floor, give emotional speeches, uh, uh, people are weeping, etc., etc., and and uh, so the chamber then declares itself the National Assembly, which was what it had been way back in the days of of the Republic, uh, and comes up with the idea of an executive commission to to be a a, a new you know more or less provisional government. It it gets uh, called executive commission sometimes, provisional government sometimes. Uh, three members selected by the assembly, two by the chamber of peers, which is sort of like the Senate, uh, and the throne will be left vacant. Now, this is critical. I mean, right off the bat, this idea of Napoleon II, of Napoleon's son, uh, is, is, is shaky. There's no move in this resolution to put anyone on the throne, a regent, Napoleon's son, for that matter, the king. Uh, it does include language uh, that says France has the right to choose its own leader, but uh, you know that's uh, you know that's that's not saying an awful lot at this stage, particularly with with the Allied forces uh, so close, and given the history of 1814. So, you know, uh, Fouché writes, by the way, and, and I'm going to read this because it's. It, it really it's a rare example of Fouché explaining just exactly how self-centered he was. Uh, here then was a change of scene. The power having passed away from the hands of Napoleon, who was to remain master of the field? I soon detected the secret designs of the cabinet. I discovered that the Bonapartist party, now under the guidance of Lucien, that was, of course, Napoleon's brother, intended as a consequence of the abdication to countenance the immediate proclamation of Napoleon II and the establishment of a council of regency. This would have been to have suffered the hostile camp to triumph. Notice he's already referring to the Bonapartists as the hostile camp, even though he's claiming to be such good buddies. In fact, that regency, which had been so long in the drift of all of my calculations and the object of all my desires, which, by the way, I question, now about to be organized under another influence than mine, excluded me from a share in the government. And there, of course, is the key. The only thing that really matters to Fouché is that he is in a position to pull the strings. 
It was necessary, therefore, to recur to new combinations and to man counter-batteries in order with equal address to defeat the system of the Regency and the restoration of the Bourbon. I therefore conceive the creation of a, of a provisional government established in conformity with my own suggestions and which, in consequence, I should be able to direct according to my own views. Go on. No, I was I was just going to ask you if he was already the president of the provisional government at this stage, but you just he just answered my question. Sorry for interrupting. Well, well I know that that that's fine. I I think that uh, this he's writing after the fact. Of course, he's talking about the kind of things that he that he uh, was was trying to uh, contrive to have take place. So and was, so the chamber was, accepts. From, sorry, from Fouché's perspective, he was just trying to make sure that. He would, I mean, and that's fair enough. I guess everybody has, and particularly playing at those levels of politics, must have a certain ambition that one day they're going to be the man or woman in the in the top job in the big seat. And Fouché saw this as his opportunity to obviously play a significant role in government. He wasn't going to try and make himself emperor or king, but obviously wanted to orchestrate it in a way where he ended up with some sort of long-term political power of France. Well, that's exactly right. He wants to be the string puller. He wants to be the power behind the scenes. And at a minimum, he doesn't want to be exiled or executed, which, of course, is always a possibility when you've played uh, so many sides against each other uh, as Fouché has, has played. I've said more than once that you know Napoleon should have executed Fouché uh, instead of turning to him for help when he came back from, uh, from Elba. But... Uh, my opinion was in a minority uh, in, in the councils of, of government at that time. So, so the chamber, you know, uh, accepts Napoleon's abdication, uh, sends a delegation to uh, the headquarters of the Allies that are supposed to insist on France's right to independence and on the protection of Napoleon's uh, person. And they establish... Uh, the five-man uh, 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 commission uh, to uh, uh, to run to run the government, prepare a new constitution, etc., uh, etc. Et well, obviously, the Bonapartists, Lucien and, and his supporters, are are ludicrous, or, or, or rather, excuse me, are furious, uh, and they think that this whole operation, in fact, is ludicrous. They point out that, number one, Napoleon abdicated in favor of his son. So if, if, if you're not going to accept that, then arguably the abdication is null and void. Uh, not only that, the Constitution uh, uh, pro provides uh, for succession. Uh, and the uh, act additional that, that Napoleon had put in to uh, the Constitution to make the Republicans, the people who were, you know, the old revolutionaries uh, support him, uh, forbade any proposal to bring back the Bourbon or any branch of that family. Uh, and so, you know, and all this idea that there, there might be this option was against the very Constitution they were all sworn to uphold uh, and that the resolution was unconstitutional and thus illegal. Uh, there were problems, however. You know, it's a lot easier to put somebody on a throne if they're handy. And Napoleon II, as, as, as he was being called, Napoleon's son, and his mother, Marie-Louise, who would have been the presumed regent, uh, were in Austria. And the chances that Austria was going to send them to Paris to, to take over uh, France was not very likely. The pretty low probability uh, that was going to happen. Uh, there were other arguments. Uh, they pointed out that if Napoleon had, had been killed, that his son would automatically have succeeded to the throne. And that it's no different to have a political defeat in the form of an abdication than, than a physical defeat in, in, the, for, in the form of having, having died in, in battle. Uh, well, none of these arguments went anywhere, even though if, if you read the law all the time, they, they were all quite valid. Uh, 
those people who supported the resolution said, well, you know, Napoleon II might still end up being, being the emperor. We're just not prepared to decide on that uh, right, right now. And that swayed enough people uh, to get uh, uh, the thing passed. But the reality of the situation, Cameron, was that uh, now uh, there was no way that the empire was going to, uh, to continue. Uh, and there were lots of lots of fiery speeches, and people like General Abidwayer gave gave uh, uh, angry speeches and so on. But again, it was all a bunch of hot air. Nothing was going to change. Napoleon was out. The empire was out. Uh, they would play some games, but it was very clear, I think, to most people that what this really meant, even though a lot of Folks might not have said it just yet. What this really meant was that Louis XVIII was likely to come back. There wasn't much of a move for Napoleon II. Once this thing was set up the way I just described, there there was even less movement toward uh, establishing a a new republic. Uh, And uh, so the assembly sends a delegation to Napoleon. Thank you very much for your noble sacrifice. Napoleon, of course, is probably want to barf all over them. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, obviously they're just playing their little games. Uh, he tells them, listen, what you really need to do is to get, get your butts in gear and start to, to uh, uh, work on defending France. All the effort you've time, uh, put in and the time you've put in uh, trying to overturn the empire, namely him, uh, was wasted. And really should have been put into getting getting the army uh, ready. I mean, the, the, the enemy is is at the gates. They're he- they're heading toward Paris. And just you know, how much negotiation do you think you can do if if they are basically uh, defeating us? Uh, and uh, says that's the real danger. Uh, and he says, well, and by the way, don't forget, I only abdicated for my son. I've made this sacrifice so that my dynasty can. Can can continue. Uh, well, you know, again, they're 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 doing a dance. This whole period, and I think I point this out in 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 my upcoming book. This whole period is really a dance. You know, various people are taking the lead. They're moving around the dance floor, uh, but the ultimate goal, the ultimate end, uh, was pretty much determined before the dance began. Uh, but they're going. They're going through the motions, uh, and and so you know the the uh, leaders begin to 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 look toward getting the army ready. They do sort of take care of of of, of that part of business, if for no other reason that a stronger entrenched army uh, would improve their position in negotiations with the allies, make it a little less likely that they would impose the Bourbon on them. Uh, and uh, so even the the supporters, in fact, arguably especially the supporters of Napoleon II, were really anxious to see uh, that the army be reinforced, be, be properly uh, entrenched around Paris, uh, and uh, uh, that uh, the Allies be shown that they will not take Paris without without a fight. Well, this brings us to a little side issue, and in Napoleon for Dummies, I I mentioned it very very briefly, uh, and that is the question of Marshal Michel Ney. Now Ney, you you may recall, is is the fiery cavalry leader who, who is sort of really good news and bad news. He's inspirational. He, he's brave. Uh, he's very good at leading cavalry attacks. Not just but the brave, he's the bravest of the brave. Prince of the is, Moskva. Well, that's right. And, and, and that was his high point as far as I'm concerned in, in his Napoleonic career uh, when, we, when, when we see him in in uh, Russia in 1812, he, he led the, the rear guard and was 
to some extent responsible for the preservation of, of what there was left of, of Napoleon's uh, Grand Armée. Uh, but at Waterloo, he was, as our listeners will certainly recall, uh, not quite at his finest. <clears throat> he wasn't all bad, but his most famous contribution, as it were, to Waterloo was the repeated charges of the heavy crossier uh, without adequate uh, artillery or cavalry or, or infantry support. And uh, as a result, an awful lot of French uh, heavy uh, cavalry were, were killed or wounded uh, for really very, very little gain. Well, Ney has made his way uh, back to uh, Paris, along with the stream of soldiers that were making their way back, you know, in front of the Allied forces. And he gets there really not much later than Napoleon does. Now, you would have thought that Ney would have reported immediately to Napoleon, for further orders, sire, yeah? or maybe to the Minister of War, that would be Marshal Davout, to find out what he should do next. After all, he is one of the top field commanders in the French army. Uh, he could easily be instrumental in organizing uh, the defense of Paris. Instead, Ney goes to Fouché. Now, as, as, as I've said on more than one occasion, Ney may, may not have been the, you know, the brightest light in the sky, but he could well imagine that if Napoleon was in fact finished and the Bourbons were to return, that he'd be in big trouble. I mean, Ney, you may remember, had stayed in France, accepted a top position in the military uh, with Louis XVIII, promised to bring Napoleon back in an iron cage when Sorry, he you know, Louis went the to get... Louis the Sixteenth. No, Louis the Eighteenth. With Louis the Eighteenth. Yeah, Louis the Eighteenth. Sorry, uh, my bad. Louis the Eighteenth. Okay, Louis <laughs> Louis the Eighteenth, who had who had uh, taken over in eighteen fourteen. Louis the Sixteenth, having been, of course, killed in the French Revolution, uh, and promised Louis to bring Napoleon back in an iron cage. But then, in fact, ends up defecting to to the emperor and in fighting on Napoleon's side at Waterloo. So, so obviously, uh, Ney is probably going to be okay if Napoleon stays in power. Although Napoleon is probably going to be pretty pissed off at him. Uh, but it's not looking real good for Napoleon. So, instead of going to Napoleon or instead of going to Davout, Ney probably wisely goes to Fouché. And and says, listen, uh, you know, Louis on his way. I need to get out of here. Uh, can you give me uh, passports to leave the country? Uh, now, this issue of passports, I want our listeners to really remember this issue. It's a critical issue, and it's almost sounds bizarre to 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 you and I, you and I, Cameron, or you and I to all who are listening. Uh, you would think that a marshal of France could grab a bunch of money, get in a carriage, and get the hell out of town, cross a border. Who's going to stop you? You, know? uh, you also needed passports to go through various regions of France. Again, given the nature of the country and given who he is, who's going to stop him? Nevertheless, he says, listen, I need passports. Okay? So... Uh, Fouché quickly says, of course, I will get them for you. And he does. He gives Ney, uh, he's at this point, you know, in, in, in a position that was well, as the chief of police at this point, he, he can do this. One of the passports is legitimate, made out to Marshal of the Empire, Duc de Eckligen, Prince of the Moscova, Peer of France. Uh, so it's, it's I'm, I'm Marshal Ney, make way, kind of a passport. Uh, Similar to what you would probably have, Cameron. Uh, the other, the other passport is a fake, sort of a just in case, and it's made out to a uh, Michael Theodore Newborg, who was described on the thing as a merchant. Uh, 
And there's, then there's a list of servants, in quotes, that were allowed to accompany Ney. And, of course, these would be family members or maybe other, uh, maybe his aide-de-camp, whoever, uh, which would allow him to get out of town and, indeed, out of the country. Now, at this point, Ney has it all going his way. There's, there's absolutely no reason why he can't go to his estate, grab a bunch of gold coins and other things, grab a carriage, and leave. And maybe make some arrangements with some bankers to transfer, you know, other funds to a Swiss account or something. There's, there's all sorts of ways that, 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 that this, you know, money thing can be handled. Napoleon did some of this himself. And, and so he gets out of town and, and watches and waits to see, you know, where things go. Well, he doesn't do that. Instead, he he goes to the Chamber of Peers, again, sort of the Senate. He was a member, and he wants to watch and see, you know, what's what's going on. And uh, when he gets there, Carnot, you'll recall Carnot was the revolutionary, the Republican uh, that Napoleon uh, brought into his new coalition at the beginning of the Hundred Days. Uh, to write the additional act and so Carn- uh, to the Constitution. So Carnot's a big supporter of Napoleon at this point. And Carnot is, is not wanting to have a Louis in, in, you know, pushed on them. So he is anxious to organize military resistance uh, to, to, to the Allies. And, and they, who, by the way, had, had a couple of characteristics in addition to those good and bad that we've talked about, he was notoriously hot-tempered. Uh, he, he, he was quite prone to use the F word, uh, and I don't mean fooey. Uh, or fouché. And, or fouché. <laughs> and and uh, he, he was often known to uh, speak prior to thinking. Uh, and so he hears Carnot saying, we have to organize our defense, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and... He goes ballistic for some reason, and, and I don't really know why. It, it doesn't make any sense, but he demands to have the floor, and after all, considering who he is, he's, he's going to get the floor, and he pretty much just takes the floor. Now, it's hard to say whether he's just trying to make himself look better uh, or, or, or whether he really truly believes that Carnot is making things out to be you know, a bit rosier than, than they are. Uh, he gives uh, a, a fiery and angry speech. The news, which the Minister of Interior has just read, is false. False in every respect. The enemy is victorious at every point. I have witnessed the disaster, for I commanded the army under the emperor. I would parenthetically add, and I created much of the disaster. Hey. After the results of those days of the disaster, the 16th and the 18th, they dare to tell us that we ended by beating the enemy on the 18th, that there are 60,000 men on the frontier. The statement is false. At the very most, Marshal Grouchy has rallied uh, 20 to 25,000 men. When they tell us that the Prussian army has been destroyed, it is not true. The greater part of that army has not been in action. In six or seven days, the enemy will, be, will perhaps be in the midst of the capital. There is no other means for securing the public safety but to make proposals to the enemy at once. Well, leaving out whether or not what Ney said was valid, and parts of it were, certainly if if anyone thought the Prussians had been destroyed, that was wrong. Uh, Certainly, uh, if they thought that somehow uh, the French had been victorious. That was wrong. Uh, Marshal Grouchy had more than twenty or 25,000 men by then. Davu had more. There were other forces being brought to, brought to bear. So, you know, things weren't as grim as Marshal Michel Ney thought. But he had his say, and his compadres and the chamber of peers were stunned. They just sort of had their jaws drop. Some folks thought he was just acting inappropriately. Some folks thought he was out of his mind. 
a number of people told him that, that how dare him speak in a way that would damage the morale of the troops or for that matter of the citizens of, of Paris who they were asking to prepare to defend. Uh, but Ney, uh, Ney has his say and eventually leaves. And, and we, we might you know, mention this again later on, but I, I will just sort of, to, to finish the story of Ney for this episode anyway, tell you that Ney never did really get out of town. He hung around, he hung around, and eventually he was arrested. Uh, he actually was given more than one chance to escape. Uh, no one really, really wanted to see him killed, uh, but in, in time he was tried uh, and, and he was uh, executed by firing squad on, on December 7th, 1815. And for those of us who, despite everything, uh, are, are somewhat fond of Marshall Ney, that, that's one of those days of infamy. Uh, that's not the only, you know, Pearl Harbor isn't the only December 7th day of infamy uh, in, in, in the world. There, and, are, uh, there are also some really interesting conspiracy theories around the fact that he maybe wasn't executed, aren't there? Oh sure, I mean there's there's whole books on the subject uh, that there was a double uh, that it really wasn't Ney who was who was killed, or that the soldiers were firing blanks, or they were aiming into the air, you know, so that they missed him entirely and he fell, and then he was whisked away to safety. Uh, there are people who who very very seriously uh, believe that he came to the United States and became a a school teacher. Uh, and uh, there, there is this fellow Ney in North Carolina or some such place uh, who continually claimed that he was Marshal Ney. It's an amusing story. It's interesting. Uh, is it remotely possible? Well, I, sure, anything is remotely possible. Uh, is it very likely? No, I would say it's almost certainly unlikely. Uh, that it uh, happened that way, uh, but uh, you know, it's 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 one of the interesting stories. I mean, I think we have already talked about uh, Marshal uh, Hokiamura, you know, who who Napoleon, you know, rejected in the Hundred Days, and 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 really very unwisely so, in 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 my opinion, uh, and so. You know, after after Waterloo, uh, he decided he would try to reclaim his kingdom of Naples, much the same way that that Napoleon did. So he makes his way to Naples, uh, to Italy. I don't recall exactly where he landed. Uh, he he lands uh, with a small force. Uh, it's quickly captured. He's quickly tried, and he's quickly shot. Uh, so here are two of the greatest figures in Napoleonic history, whether you love them or hate them, whether you think they were really, really fabulous military leaders or whether you think they were, you know, idiots. And, and you can get people who will argue on all sides of that. And I always call both Mira and they really good news and bad news. I mean, they did some really, really great things, uh, Murat was probably the best cavalry leader uh, in Europe in the 19th century. Uh, one of the best cavalry leaders in, in all time. Uh, Ney was, as you say, the bravest of the brave. Uh, they did a lot of very good things for Napoleon. They, they were instrumental in some of Napoleon's successes. They were also uh, a traitorous uh, in, in, in the case of uh, Murat uh, when uh, you know he cut deals with the Austrians, uh, undercutting Napoleon. Uh, uh, after uh, Russia, uh, and and Ney was not traitorous by by staying behind. There was nothing wrong with staying behind and being loyal to France uh, when Napoleon abdicated the first time. Uh, but he he certainly did Napoleon in, uh, not meaning to, but he did uh, at at Waterloo. He's <clears throat> one of the major problems at Waterloo. But here these two guys are. Anyone who reads anything about Napoleon knows these two marshals probably more than any of the other marshals. You get uh, Davu, you get Massena, uh, both of whom were probably much, much better marshals uh, and better for Napoleon in many ways. Uh, but they don't have the, the uh, pizzazz uh, that, that uh, Murat 
and uh, and they do, and so many more people uh, are are familiar with those two than than with any of the of the other marshals. Can I, so that's can I tell an anecdote ahead. about Murat's execution? Please do. <clears throat> so he um, he had fled to uh, Corsica, and then um, as you said, he was in Calabria trying to get Naples back, and he was arrested by the forces of Ferdinand the Fourth, his his rival in in Naples, and right. um, they they were. Uh, I've got this quote here when he was being led out to the firing squad at uh, Castello di Pizzo in uh, Calabria. It says, when the, fi- when the fatal moment arrived, Murat walked with a firm step to the place of execution, as calm, as unmoved as if he had been going to an ordinary review. He would not accept a chair nor suffer his eyes to be bound. I have braved death, said he, too often to fear it. He stood upright, proudly and undauntedly, with his countenance towards the soldiers. And when all was ready, he kissed a chameleon on which the head of his wife was engraved and gave the word, thus, save my face, aim for the chest, fire. <laughs> it's terrific. I love it. Well, it is. And and uh, I seem to recall reading that e- either by... Uh, you know, either deliberately or by accident, at least one of the soldiers did not save the face, and he, he got hit in the face. But uh, uh, the accuracy of those uh, uh, muskets not always being as, as great as they could be. And, of course, somebody might have said, yeah, well, here, I got your face right here, fella. You know, who, who, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's, it's an ignobious end. I'm one of these people who believes that 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 people who have played such an important role uh, in history, deserve better. Now, of course, the fact that they were Napoleon's marshals, and, and as some people have suggested uh, by very, very carefully listening to what I have to say, I have a slight uh, a bias in favor of Napoleon from time to time. So, really? so it's, not su- it's not surprising. I never picked that, that up. I, I figured you hadn't yet. It's not surprising that, that perhaps that I would like to see a better fate for them. Uh, but I would have felt the same way if, if Waterloo had gone differently and, and Blucher and, and uh, Wellington had been captured or had, had to flee for their lives. I, I would not have found it at all appropriate uh, that they would somehow uh, be executed for having served honorably as, as commanders of, 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 of their military, even though I might relish the fact that they had been defeated at Waterloo. Uh, at any rate, my opinion counts for amazingly little uh, for something that happened uh, almost exactly 200 years ago. So, uh, so we, move, uh, we move forward. And, and at this stage, uh, more and more it's becoming obvious that the, the uh, Napoleon II is, is out and, and Louis is in. But we do have to deal with the formation of this new provisional government or executive committee, call it, call it what, you, uh, what you wish. And it's going to be done by election. And there was a lot of debate, a lot of campaigning uh, in the two houses, remember the the House of Representatives basically gets three. The Chamber of Peers gets gets uh, two. The the National Assembly gets three. The other gets two. Uh, and on the twenty second, uh, they're going to hold this vote, and and Fouché uh, goes home and 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 awaits uh, the results. And in fact, Fouché is uh, elected as one of the three members from the Chamber of Representatives, but. He comes in second of the three. Uh, Carnot, who we've talked about before, a strong supporter of Napoleon, uh, once, once Napoleon sort of co-opted him by having him write this very liberal addition to the Constitution, the Act Additionnel, the Additional Act, Carnot is now a very big fan of Napoleon and, and would much rather have Napoleon II on the throne than, than Louis. There's no question whatsoever about that. And then a general, a general Grenier, uh, was elected uh, to the third uh, uh, position. 
and uh, uh, the the uh, uh, Marquis uh, Armand de Calincourt uh, was was elected uh, in first place from the Chamber of Peers. Calincourt, of course, having been a long time uh, supporter of Napoleon, he was currently Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, in my in my new book, I use Calincourt's uh, uh, memoirs extensively. Uh, and then uh, 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 Nicholas uh, Quinet, who is a, a baron, uh, is also elected uh, with 48. It's 52 to 48. The, the guy that came in third, by the way, with only 18 votes was Lucien. And, of course, man, if Lucien could have been on in, in this group, that might have changed a lot of things. Uh, at any rate, uh, Carnot, Fouché, and Quinet were what we call regicides. They had all three in their time voted for the death of Louis XVI back in 1792. So it's ironic that Fouché in particular, uh, as a regicide, as someone who, who had voted to, to execute Louis XVIII's brother, Louis XVI, uh, was working now to try to get Louis XVIII uh, on the throne. And the commission meets the morning of the 23rd. And, and you'll forgive me for taking a little time with this, but this is... This is just an amazing move by Fouché, who gambled in desperation to, to win the presidency of this commission. He wanted to be the head of the provisional government by being president of the executive commission. Okay? Obviously, he was determined to do this for, for clear reasons. But Carnot had received more votes than Fouché. Carnot has sort of the moral high ground on this, and he also wanted to be president. And if you would have taken a poll, everybody would have said, yeah, Carnot got the most, and Carnot should therefore be president. Uh, well, Fouché, playing on the naivete of people, which he was very, very good at doing, and also figuring that they would not suspect him, Fouché, of being up to anything. And by the way, how anyone could not suspect Fouché of being up to something boggles the mind. Uh, but but he, he, he guessed right. So, so Fouché makes the, the motion to elect the president of the executive commission. And he announces that he will vote for Carnot. Now, if you're in there... That sounds wonderful. Okay, this is great. We've, we've got this nice magnanimous gesture uh, uh, designed to, to, to bring unity to the commission, to, to eliminate any, any cantankerous election. Okay? Carnot, deciding to be also magnanimous, and probably, almost certainly, meaning only as a friendly gesture, not serious, because he wanted to be, the, 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 the president, he declares that he will vote for Fouché. Well, it totally backfires. Instead of being a friendly gesture, it leads to the leg legitimization of Grenier, Calincourt, and Quinet voting for Fouché. Now, they, these three folks uh, clearly would have been happy to vote for Carnot, but instead, they vote for Fouché, and he becomes the president, when there's no way he ever should have become the president. Now, that's the only time in history that I can think of where somebody has become president when he shouldn't have become president. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I wasn't going to get into that. Oh, there goes the hype mile. Mm -hmm. At any rate, well, it's the political season here in the United States. In fact, as soon as we get off of this one tonight, uh, and we're coming up on an hour now, uh, we will. I will go upstairs and watch some of the election returns for the Wisconsin primary, where I used to live. Uh, so it's hard for anyone on any side of the political fence not not to think a little bit about about politics these days. 
so Fouché has now achieved an enormous amount of success. Let's just kind of review what he's done. He has organized the abdication of Napoleon I. He's fixed it so that even though Napoleon abdicated in favor of his son, his son does not at least immediately take charge or become Napoleon II. He's organized the establishment of a commission of government, an executive commission to run the government on behalf of the legislative branch, becomes the executive branch of government, five, five men. And he's put himself in as president. The last time we saw something like this, it was Napoleon becoming first consul uh, when, when, when the, the, the coup d'etat took place. So he's clearly, clearly been very, very successful. Well, so Fouché, you know, takes charge, but he still has to deal with this issue of Napoleon II uh, taking the throne. The Constitution is still there. It's still, by, by any reading of the French Constitution of 1815, Napoleon II, Napoleon's son, should have taken the vacated throne. Okay? And Boucher has to, has to deal with this. So he, he moves quickly. He, he gives Marshal Davout the responsibility to defend Paris, making him commander-in-chief of the army. Uh, he puts uh, Marshal Massena uh, in charge of the, the National Guard, uh, deplacing uh, Lafayette, who at one time he had said was indispensable in that role. Uh, Marshal Durot was given command of the Imperial Guard. Uh, he stops the efforts to bolster the defenses of Paris. Now, this really should have alarmed everybody and made it obvious what he was up to, but, you know, nothing happens. So on the 23rd, the Chamber of Representatives meets again. The Bonapartists who were in there make one last effort to preserve the empire. They demand that Napoleon's son be declared Napoleon II. Now, by itself, this might not matter. After all, the kids in Vienna, his mother's in Vienna. Uh, the, the executive committee could even be considered the regent for Napoleon II, which would and therefore not really change the power arrangement. On the other hand, if Napoleon II were declared the emperor and a separate regency council were formed, Again, they can't make Marie-Louise the reason. Yes, she's in Vienna. Then there could be trouble uh, because that new council would take away the power of the executive commission that's run by Fouché. Uh, now, Fouché worries, number one, that this might mean the Allies won't negotiate because they may be not at all interested in having Napoleon II as the, as, as the new emperor. But, of course... Uh, it, 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 and by the way, it also might mean that if the Bourbon were restored, it would be by the force of the Allies rather than by the quote-unquote will of the people, read uh, Fouché's will, uh, and, uh, and that could be a problem. Uh, and, and of course, if, if, if the Bonapartists do ultimately win and the Allies accept uh, Napoleon II, uh, Fouché is going to be out in the cold. There is not going to be much that Fouché can, uh, can, can, can do about things at that stage. He, he may need to issue himself some passports. Uh, and so the question then becomes, and this is sort of an arcane issue, but it, it, it sort of tells you what's going on. When you take an oath of office, to whom do you take that oath? To whom does the provisional, in whose name? does the provisional government act? The Bonapartists say that, of course, Napoleon II is the head of state, therefore we should declare him the head of state. 
uh, and anyone who takes action on behalf of the state is doing so on behalf of the Emperor Napoleon uh, II. And uh, there's, there's, there's quite a debate about that. And uh, it's, it's really very, very uh, unsure as to how that will, will finally go. Uh, and, and so they finally pass a resolution that Napoleon II is emperor of the French, according to the Constitution. Okay. Uh, but the commission of the provisional government is left in place, which is to say Fouché is still left in place. Uh, Napoleon, uh, Napoleon's son is in name emperor of the French, uh, but the commission of government very quickly decrees that all actions uh, shall be taken by government bodies and government officials in the name of the French people rather than in the name of Napoleon II. So we have technically now Napoleon II on the throne, uh, but it really uh, means essentially nothing. Uh, and Napoleon is sitting, of course, at the Elysee Palace uh, with Hortense, and uh, an aide comes to report to the emperor, and, and Napoleon says, well, what's happening? Uh, and the aide says, the attitude of the members is a thoroughly satisfactory one. Napoleon II has been proclaimed amid much enthusiasm, but interrupted the emperor, Napoleon I, what is being done? The articles of the Constitution are being discussed. Ah, exclaimed the emperor, rising abruptly. We have gone back to the days of Byzantium. People stop to discuss when the enemy is at the gates. And, of course, that's exactly what's happening. Fouché has, has uh, pulled the wool over everybody's uh, eyes. And uh, uh, it's, it's very clear uh, that that uh, Fouché is the one who's actually in charge. Which, of course, leads us up to the situation with the king and the situation uh, with the allies and what's going on with them. Is that you wrapping up? That was me at least leaving you a pregnant pause so you can discuss <laughs> the, whether you want to wrap it up now. We've done it an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I've got another show to do. So I'll, let, I'll edit this out and I'll wrap it up. So that's where we conclude episode 37 of the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. Thank you once again for enlightening us, Mr. Markham. Well, it's always a pleasure. Uh, uh, enlightening may be a strong statement, but... Uh, a lot of folks say they enjoy uh, listening to us and they're gaining something from it. And, and I say again, I'm enjoying thoroughly uh, participating in this. And uh, uh, a lot of folks keep, keep saying, you know, they're really not looking forward to the Napoleon 101 ever ending. And, of course, as long as we're taking with this one little part of the story, I'm not so sure it will ever end. Well, I'll tell you what I am looking forward to is our trip to Corsica uh, in July. Yes. I've, I've finally now booked all my airfares and my accommodation, so, and I'm going to be spending a couple of days in Paris before and after. So if any of the listeners of the show are going to be in Paris in the first couple of weeks of July, or indeed in Ajaxio or somewhere nearby in Corsica, then uh, please let us know. I'm sure David and I would both love to catch up with you and um, have a tipple and uh, talk about Napoleon or anything else that takes your fancy. Well, well, we absolutely would because um, my wife and I are going to uh, uh, spend another week in, in France, including probably a couple of days anyway in Paris. Uh, you know, you and I, Cameron, can sort of coordinate that and maybe stay at the same hotel or something. And once we have that organized, uh, we put the word out. And if anyone wants to get together for a Napoleonic evening in Paris, uh, that would be wonderful. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next time, folks. <clears throat> Thanks for tuning in. Thank you, David. Thank you, Ball Boys. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>